how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Described by Club Verboten founder Carl as gatekeeper and mindful soul who always puts the world right and keeps us tied to our core values, we are thrilled to welcome to the show Drew Beckett, an integral part of one of London's most celebrated kink and fetish parties. Uh, this was such a really like lovely episode. It was really beautiful. It was like totally not what I expected when you when you don't really have that much context for the guest apart from um lurking on the internet <laughs> which is a lot of what of our uh our kind of how we source our guests we're like they look really amazing and <laughs> like, be so great and then you kind of I don't know I had just completely different expectation it was such like a gentle conversation I'm really excited for our listeners to listen to this especially people who might be um kink curious and sober or just being like and also from a personal point of view I would love to listen to stumble across this podcast and hear this conversation because Lou and I have both very different experiences with kink like I'm not in a constellation she is and they were both like kind of experts about it but it felt like such a safe and warm and loving environment to be able to ask questions and I think um in different dynamics I think we could just like learn so much in just what we call normal relationships about the dynamics and the conversation and the consent that takes place within within this dynamic so I'm excited for people to discover it and I'm also super excited to learn more about Drew and kind of continue to evolve and looking into this from a very personal level yeah totally I mean I think he's so wise and like the kind of focus on the like education and like he doesn't I don't think he really talks about it but like the deep work of like self-acceptance of this part of one's sexual nature is like and how to do that safely in relationship or in relationships, like, is really, really rad. And like you said, I think we can learn so much from that. Like, I, it was such an enjoyable talk. <laughs> yeah, really. And really peaceful. I hope you guys enjoy it. And, um, yeah, excited to hear what you all think. And outside of um, like moving to a different country in a global pandemic, how has the last, like, you know, 18 months been um, treating you? I, it's been... I think it's probably gone as well as as it could have done, really. Um, it's been very, very nice to be in the same country as my partner for more than a couple of days at, at a time. Um, and we've managed not to, to kill each other. Um, so, no, it's been, I would say it's been... <laughs> Always like, important. There, there have, of course, been challenges along along the way, as there have been for for everybody. Um, but I, I consider myself extremely fortunate. I, I really do. Although I just really want to dance. I mean, you, I don't think I realized quite how important uh, a good rave was until I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do anything. So uh, I'm looking forward to the world slowly reopening, sensibly reopening. What about you? Do you find the uh, blessing curse? I think for me, where are it you has been that? a blessing. Um, I think I'm I'm sort of the sort of person who can I think when I was in London being involved with Verboten, being involved in, in sort of other projects, I could easily be out four or five evenings a week. Um and that was easy for me. My partner was in another country, I was living on my own. And before right. you know it, you're just completely burnt out. Um so I have really tried to learn, learn the the lesson of, of perhaps slowing down a little bit, um, and which seems sensible now that by about ten thirty in the evening, all I want to do is sleep, um, which is not an experience that I've yeah. had in the past. So I, I think it's been I think it's been positive for me. 
Nice. And do you think you'll be able to hold on to some of that? Or given the work that you do, is that just I hope so. not on the table? I hope I can hold on to it. I, I think it has been an important and, and valuable lesson. And I, I don't know whether whether this is something that would resonate with either of you, but I think better work happens if you can be a bit more conscious about it, perhaps. Um, and sometimes mm. the experiences that you chase after all the events that you go to, all the people that you interact with, it can become increasingly empty somehow because, as I say, there's this culture of consumption, mm. perhaps without the the critical thinking that, that goes behind or should go behind it. Um, so I'm famous last words, but I'm hoping that, um, that perhaps at the very least I can find some sort of equilibrium that I, by the end of my time in London, I, I absolutely didn't have. Can you tell us a bit about Verbatim um, and how you well, got involved? This was another one of my partner, uh, partner's bright ideas. Uh, her name is Annika. It's probably easier <laughs> than just saying my partner. Um, and she had gone, I think, to the, I think either the first or the second verboten, um, and really sort of enjoyed the, really enjoyed the um, the atmosphere. And then whilst she was in Norway and I was in London, uh, I started attending, and I really, I really liked what Carl, who I think you've spoken to, and um, Hans um, were trying to build something that really focused on good music um and a strong aesthetic with also i think perhaps more fundamentally and, and i think it has it plays a part in in what you're exploring as well this idea of community building um and i think sometimes going to these events or going to some a techno event what have you on your own can be a slightly strange experience and I'm an only child and very comfortable in my own company. Um, but the more I went, the more I realized that really where I would have the most meaningful experience is where I was somehow involved in the event um, and that I was busy during it. Um, and I think Verboten in particular really resonated with me and its idea of promoting consent, provoke, promoting some sort of conscious participation, which I think is uh, something that's been lost. The underground has decreased, the mainstream has increased, and now people buy a ticket and they expect an experience to be provided to them, but perhaps without any real need to engage themselves or bring something to the table. But verboten felt very different to that. Um, and then I think Carl just couldn't get rid of me. So uh, I, think, I think the first <laughs> time I, I actually worked for the event, it was because the people who were running the dungeon, uh, for whatever reason, couldn't run the dungeon sort of midway through the evening. I, like, I can run the dungeon. Um, <laughs> that was a famous last words. I, I was doing a, a shibari workshop over the weekend, and the first day went absolutely fine. But after an eight-hour dungeon shift, the next day, I, I just couldn't. The knots were just a mystery to me, um, but uh, <laughs> but it went sufficiently well that Carl invited me back, and I'm I'm grateful for that. Oh, that's really well. You know, Amazing. kind of full disclosure for listeners: the story is I did um, a Vice article on like uh, kind of what we can learn from the fetish community about consent and the kind of more vanilla nightlife spectrum. And we asked because uh, Carl had mentioned he was sober for like six months within the pandemic. So I asked him if he would be interested on in being on sober sex. And he actually volunteered you, Drew. <laughs> um, and because he said that you had kind of a really strong uh, sense of integrity in terms of like, you know, you've mentioned community, you've mentioned carbon footprint, you've mentioned kind of you know, important issues that I think both in nightlife and within the kind of fetish and kink community, it's easy to totally ignore a lot of the politics that goes into it and just like want to show up and have a good time. And so it's really nice to kind of hear about your experiences and also to have the opportunity to ask questions about like, I, I noticed I, I lurked you on FetLife and I noticed that yeah, you I, were I found very, very hard. <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> sweet. So, I, I mean, I noticed that you said you were very openly kind of critical about kind of calling um, to attention, like, where we can become better community members, I guess, um, or where we can kind of grow in a direction of um, diversity and integrity and consent within uh, fetish communities. Would you like to like kind of expand a little bit about what that looks like more um, specifically? Well, I think so in order to represent London, perhaps, and, and my London experience, where I should first start, start off is by paying tribute to probably that I think for a lot of us in, in these sort of worlds, the biggest influence on me, and I think Carl would probably say as an influence, is a man called Lee Adams. Um, and Lee Adams is a artist, performer, um, and founder of a club called Chaos and runs a record label called Chemio Records. Um, and he is the godfather of industrial techno in London, I would say. Um, and so many events that have emerged in London over the last 15 years are a direct result of his hard work. Um, and you really feel when you go to an event that Lee is part of that there is a sense of community and a sense of responsibility. And perhaps when you've gone uh, for a few years, you take that for granted, but then you go to a more mainstream event and you realize how fundamentally important it is that you can trust everybody in a room, that you can trust who you're next to, that you can trust a stranger, that if something goes wrong, you'll be supported. And I think that's very fundamental. Mm. Um, I think in terms of translating that over to the kink and quote-unquote scene, um, is that we are now subject to so many different influences. So we have visual culture in a way that we never had before, Instagram, Twitch, uh, TikTok, these things. You know, we have the proliferation of BDSM, of fetish, far more widely in mainstream culture than I think it was even when I started getting into it in 2001, perhaps. Um, but somewhere in between, there is an education gap, or at least the potential for an education gap, um, and perhaps a pressure that comes with that education gap. Um, so I think it's really important for events to run them themselves responsibly. And that's not just when the event is happening, it's also the dialogue that happens around the event. Um, and I think that's where I'm particularly interested in what Verboten does. And then you hope that by the time you get to a party or by the time you get to a play party, a lot of that education work is already established. Um, and I think by and large, it's it's certainly an evolving process, but by and large, it's it, it is definitely effective. That's so exciting. And I mean, just for people who might be kind of curious about this kind of stuff, what would self-education in that department look like? Um, I think it can look different depending on what it is that you're interested in or what you want to invest in. I mean, that, for instance, there's a lot more literature these days about different sorts of relationship dynamics, and that's readily available in book form. Um, I like Shibari, and the, I mean, Berlin has some really great uh, resources in you know, that you can watch videos. Um, FetLife, I mean, it's a site that is somehow hellish to use, but does have very good writing. Um, <laughs> so that there is there is a lot that you can do just through the same resources that you might use as a passive observer. Um, and we know now a lot of uh, DOMs, both male, female, non-binary, that run workshops. Um, and perhaps some of the, the culture that perhaps can be problematic if, if there's no sort of foundation to it can also be a great opportunity for for a resource um there are yeah there are even whatsapp groups that sort of people ask questions and th they can be very straightforward questions but if you have a sense of community then no one's going to judge you for them and i think perhaps the 
the most useful thing we can communicate online or at workshops or events is that it's okay to say, I don't know how to do this or I am afraid of this. And, mm. and I think that's important as well. That's so powerful, isn't it? Just being in that, I don't know, is this a safe space where I can ask a question, you know, and creating a community around that because then like we can fucking do anything, right? But <laughs> if we can feel that the space is comfortable enough for us to be vulnerable within that. I think that's um, that's huge. It's huge for, I think, event and nightlife in general, right? Because there's such a, there can be such an ego that goes with being out, being in the club world or whatever, or looking a certain way. And I love that it's kind of growing from this and this idea of, um, uh, yeah, the underground underworld in a way can you just explain for anybody myself included actually what fet world um, fet life fet is life is i suppose and louisa correct me if this is a, a bad analogy um i suppose it's a social media website for people who wish to express themselves in a in a sexual on a sexual forum um so it largely revolves around people's fetish it has much broader uh, restrictions or fewer restrictions than your sort of mainstream sites. Um, so it is an opportunity for people to explore, um, perhaps and communicate in a way that they couldn't do on Facebook, Twitter, um, or, or any other social media site. Um, and then it's also a place that you can run events through. So if you're in a particular country or in a particular oh, cool. town in that country, um, you can look for events through that as well. Um, it is fairly simple to, to use. I think it's probably harder to use if you identify um, as a woman, I would say, because um, I goodness knows how many emails you get from people saying, say can that? I have a photo of your feet? Um, but um, <laughs> but it, it, does have its, it does have its use. And they have done a very good job of keeping it going for as, as long as they have. Yeah, I, so. I mean, it's like kinky Facebook 2003, <laughs> like the like, is so like archaic, that it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous that there's literally no bells and whistles. But I think, yes, I mean, Drew mentioned that, like, as a woman, there's a lot of, quote, unquote, like fake doms out there who have no kind of sense of respect to assume that just because you kind of list your own sexual preferences in a very specific way, which you're, you can do or not do, you know, that like, because you say you're submissive immediately, you're like, they're submissive, which is just deeply offensive oh and kind of speaks to the yeah. education necessary to kind of have, uh, safety and integrity in this, this universe. But it's also super nice because it's like, it's beautiful to kind of watch everybody like embrace this part of themselves so fully. <laughs> you know like just because it's not mine doesn't mean that somebody else isn't totally into something and there's like like no kink shaming kind of is the the vibe and it's it's uh it's a bit intense i think if you're not kind of prepared for the things you're going to see there but it's also like wow i didn't know that that was a thing <laughs> so yeah i'm a, I've, i'm a fan of fed life and if you're interested in any kind of kink fetish bdsm power exchange uh, atypical relationship constellations it's a really good place to learn some stuff because there's a lot of people there who are really enthusiastic mm. about like whatever they're into <laughs> I find it also a very good shorthand way of communicating with people so if somebody says ah oh, what's your story I just screenshot my fat life profile send it across to them and go uh, <laughs> that's all you need to know <laughs> this <laughs> perfect and that's a perfect transition into our next question so to get a bit more personal um can you tell us a little bit about some of the first messages you received around sex um, and sexuality well, here now i i betray my age um i'm 37 so I, I think i'm the oldest person in the room by a little way um so i my first yeah my first sort of sexual interactions were actually probably around msn messenger um, when MSN Messenger was was very much a new thing, when dial-up was still still a thing, um, and you would use Messenger 
a bit like you would use text messages now, very emoji heavy, and everybody did what, what we called cyber. I mean, it sounds very quaint now, but you would cyber with people. So you would be asked ASL, age, sex, location, um, and it would very quickly devolve into what are you wearing? Will you take this off? Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, so very clumsy and also very naive. I mean, when I think about it now, I think, goodness, I could have been talking to anybody. I mean, I, I had no idea who I was talking yeah. to. This was before cameras were, were so prevalent on computers. Um, so it was like, if you had a webcam, like you were high tech. <laughs> <laughs> so it was largely so this thing built on very naive trust. And, and perhaps if, uh, yeah, if I was growing up now, I, I would not do it. Or if I had children, I'd be like, what, what on earth are you? What on earth are you doing? Stay away from MSN Messenger. <laughs> and then Jesus. I think it was sort of, it must have been about 96, 97 when I watched Crash. And then all of a sudden, sort of, and I should say the Cronenberg crash, not the not the other crash. Um, when suddenly I, I realized, <laughs> Wait, is that the one? With- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I would like to learn something about the human spirit. That's my king. Um, but that that was my first exposure <laughs> to perhaps a, a, a type of sexuality that wasn't. Yeah, just simply like trying to imagine what it was like to undress somebody online. Um, and then my interests sort of continued from there, I would say. Going from there, if it's appropriate to ask, what are some of your key constellations? I really like this term, constellations. Um, that's a good question. Louisa, it's, it's it's good. Great, this. I mean, it's beautiful. To be it's like so nice to kind of clarify it's because I think that it's there's a lot of ideas that sexuality is somehow like a like a tunnel like a wormhole that like if you just like go in one direction like that's kind of the, the direction that you're in or as I find that like in this universe specifically and maybe it's true outside of it but that's I this is kind of where I discovered this idea is that it's like it's like a spider web it's not linear so the idea of a constellation of like many kind of interconnected points as opposed to like one line leading to another thing leading to another thing like because it is an interpersonal idea you know it's like it's formed in relationship that like if i'm into this and you're also into this but you're into that too then i become into that and that kind of has another relationship with this other thing it's like i think it's a really exciting way to kind of discover or think about i think it's right i think that would be really nice visualized somehow if you you know i think that i I think it's such a an an excellent sort of, of way of describing things um and i think as you say it can vary from person to person um and dynamic to dynamic. I think broadly speaking, when I'm sort of, yeah, if I'm thinking about my kink life or my party life, what have you, I, I like an element of violence. Um, I think over the last few years, I've perhaps because of what you see on, uh, on FetLife or perhaps because I realize, you know, that it's okay to say that there's more to learn. Um, I sort of try and get away from perhaps this sort of traditional DOM sub sort of uh, terminology. Um, but I like that to be, I like that to be a sort of friction. Um, I think if you've read my fat life, it's like the dynamic of hate. I, and I think, I think if you're sort of a soft person um, in sort of your vanilla life, perhaps it's nice to explore something else um so i i would say i like to be blind i have a real thing for doing stuff with my hands i think the vast majority of any of the things you see of me i've sort of got my hand on someone's throat um so i'm known for that i have a strange (laughs) strange obsession with sportswear and the 90s like a genuine sort of yeah i mean a psychotherapist would have a field day with my um with my sort of sexual obsession with the 90s into daria and like having a hand down your throat, I'm probably the person for you. So how did you figure out what you liked and how did you get so like Yeah, the specificity, specific I suppose, that? has always makes me curious. I I grew up I had extreme I should say, not that this means very much, but I, I had a pretty sort of charmed childhood. Um but as an only child Where going did you to grow a up? boys' school run by monks in a very Catholic family. Um, I suppose I had a very specific sort of style of, of growing up. Um, 
And I remember sort of having these strange Saturday afternoons when I was hitting puberty of, you know, suddenly I was finding All Saints hot and, and, and things like that. But I, I'm watching Crash on a on a sort of stolen VHS because my father would record over any sort of remotely sexy bits in a film that was sort of recorded off the television. <laughs> yeah. um, so I would I would have to sort of either bootleg it or, or eventually sort of get my own television. Um, and I think somehow having that desire for exploration but no outlet for the exploration um, has probably carried through into my adult life. Um, and I think one of the consequences of having this very specific uh, childhood was that actually when I came to university, when I hit my 20s, firstly, I had no personality to speak of because I'd sort of never had to develop one. Um, and also I had no frame of reference for my interactions with people. And the consequence of that was for the, a large chunk mm. of my 20s, I was not a very nice person to be around at all. I think I was incredibly mm. toxic um and eventually that as the as that happens you sort of have a comeuppance um and you have to rebuild which is what happened to me um, i had a very sort of bad experience about 12 years ago which um which in a way was a blessing and created a reset and then after that reset it's like, okay how do i explore those darker mm. elements of me in a safe way you know, I, it's a strange person to quote, but I read an interview with Tom Hanks and where he said being nice is a choice. And I really agree with that sometimes. It's huh. not always innate that we are nice. It is a choice. Ooh. I'm writing it on um, a post-it note but immediately. But the question of, what, <laughs> of how do you explore those not nice elements? And I think the older I've got, the more curious I've become in that um, and how do you build a sort of safe, consensual, um, exciting, um, and filling dynamic with someone exploring those elements? That's so mm. rad. I mean, and I love that you t kind of talk openly about having to have a hard reset. Because I do think that, like, you know, much in... <laughs> I remember when I first met my partner, like, and I was trying to explain to him kind of what I was looking for in terms of dynamic. He quoted Spider-Man. Perfect. What did he say? What did he quote when he quoted Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. And I mean, I think that that's kind of true. Like if you do have a proclivity for any kind of violence or darkness or, you know, enjoy causing pain or, you know, allowing others to cause pain there there comes with it an inherent need to have a lot of education in the area of how to do that in a way that is not actually harmful you know like not psychically toxic as you kind of mentioned and perhaps not a place to work out trauma like you have to be in a certain kind of resolved space to be able to go into that space with curiosity and um safety right it's not going in and like figuring out your shit in in amongst this dynamic no i don't know i'm not in a constellation so i think certainly what would you guys again it comes back to this being open about what you can and can't do um and sort of sometimes having really boring conversations but conversations that i think are essential um and and then figuring out a, a level to start at you don't have to know everything all at once um, but also, I suppose, mm. coming from a place of honesty and, and then if perhaps it's not a dynamic that's working or if it's not a type of play that's working, try and create an environment where that doesn't have to be catastrophic, you know, where that, that can be okay mm. and you can be closer because of it perhaps. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that that's actually really like to have a baseline, but then also the honesty kind of works in both ways, right? Like not only honesty to self and to partner, but also like, this is what I want, mm -hmm. you know, like you can actually have everything you want. Like part of the beauty of this universe is that like, whatever your like freakiest fantasy is, like there will be somebody who's down for it, but there is a necessitated communication process and consent process. And like, if you're willing to kind of build it and do the work and kind of wait for a person that's compatible for that, like, 
or I hate to use the word groom because that sounds really fucked up and manipulative. It does. To, to build enough kind of like cohesion and trust that you can go places with, with whoever you're going there with, um, that it feels safe for everybody is amazing. I mean, I think like one of the best play experiences I had was prior to this relationship, like meeting somebody on a vanilla dating app who was like, this is what I'm into. <laughs> this is how I navigate that in a safe way. And what do you, how do you feel about that? You know, it's like, when do we have those conversations outside of a kind of like kinky dynamic? I mean, I just, I really wish that these tools were kind of given to, you know, <laughs> children essentially, like it was part of a sexual education. I think that would be brilliant. I bet you dad would disagree. <laughs> Yeah, that education has to take place. It's scary, isn't it? Because, like, you know, I'm in a long-term marriage and, you know, we, we still have to have those awkward conversations. And and like you said, sometimes it's not about finding the resolution very quickly, it's allowing it to sit and just sort of, like, processing that and then figuring, like, intimacy is a journey, not like a destination, you know, and that I need to just allow it to settle into my body or likewise. And sort of also you know, Lou and I've talked about this before, but like navigating my intimate and sexual life within pregnancy has been really interesting because it's totally not how I thought it was going to look. And it's been really fun to get to know my body in a completely different way. But also sometimes I'm noticing that what I feel society tells us about being pregnant or in that space can really lead to a shutdownness around wanting to explore that, like it's wrong or, you know, so I think that this, I really hope that um, anybody who's listening to this conversation, you know, can feel curious to maybe explore what does that look like in, in a, in a more regular constellation or whatever, or a marriage or something to have those uncomfortable conversations and explore it. And I think truly, if you have a partner you can trust and, um, like I like to dice with a little bit of violence. Like what does that look like in pregnancy? That's kind of exciting and fun, you know, but you say that just off the bat, it sounds kind of nutty, but um, it's also, I think when you're in the right relationship and the right partnership, it can be so freeing. Yeah. Anyway, that's me going off on <laughs> one about really pregnancy. About <laughs> I bring pregnancy to everything at the moment. Yeah. I, I can't speak for, France, but I, I certainly think there's a lot of taboo around having that sort of conversation. So I think it's really great that you are having that conversation. I think that's brilliant. Well, it's great to have you have you part of it. So you talk a little bit about um, you know, like this moment where there was a shift and a change. Was that anything to do with sobriety? Um, How does sobriety so fit into that story? The, I mean, on this I would say I can talk broadly. I have made a deal with some of the people involved that I, I sort of wouldn't talk about them directly. But I, I would say that I, uh, there was a time where, let's see, maybe at 12, 13 years ago, um, where my life had sort of got to a point where I was essentially a functioning alcoholic, um, where my perception of what was normal in any sense, work, personal life, anything like that was completely distorted um and i would be scrabbling around for change to go and buy I used to be able to buy very very cheap like supermarket owned brand beer which i think now they've made illegal um because it was so cheap but it would be me sort of scrabbling around um and then as part of that reset um i i i literally sort of had to to go cold turkey not by design um, but because my life got to a certain point where my parents had to come and sort of pick me up in the middle of the night when it was raining, I was in my pajamas somewhere in North London. Um, and that was, um, and that was a, a substantial shift in my life that lasted four years, I think, mm. um, and four very strange and very alone years. And a good year and a half of that was about rebuilding myself. Um, and then skip forward more recently, um, about three years ago, uh, I was, yeah, I think it's about three years ago now, I was at a club at Chaos on my own. Um, and I took, I still don't remember how much, 
but I took more MDMA than I could handle. Um, there was a period of about five hours of the night that I just had no recollection of. Um, but when I got home, my face was covered in blood. Mm. Now, I didn't know whether it was my blood, somebody oh, my else's gosh. blood. I had no idea how it got there. Um, and it took about six months for me to get the full picture of what's happened that evening. Um, and as it turned out, I I'd stumbled into a piece of performance art and it wasn't real blood. And not knowing, right. so I I was told for the most part, I know that the there were some areas that I think I did cross the line. Um, but for the most part, I think I was just in, mm. in my own head, but not knowing what had happened, not having control, not knowing whether I had ruined someone's night, been inappropriate, picked a fight, got into a fight, had an accident. Um, that really sort of shifted my relationship with my body and with my relationship to drugs at clubs, um, and also, I think, informed the way that I play. I, I don't know whether this is something that, that you guys can relate to, um, but certainly one kind of play that I like is where I'm the sober one and then perhaps the person that I'm with is emphatically not. Um, and I, you know, and that now is something that I have had to sort of consider. And, and think about why why do I like that how do I make that safe and why is that mm. important can I play without can I go to a club without these things um so I would say that that is where those were the two big sort of places where sobriety and my sort of clubbing experiences and my kink experiences kind of merged no that's super interesting I mean I think that it's actually a, a really good question like as we discuss community and consent like something that comes up over and over again especially in kind of more vanilla clubbing contexts is that like, what about intoxication? What if like we are going to places that people do get fucked up? What if the person who's kind of perpetrating any kind of sex, non-consensual sexual violence is fucked up? Does it's like, how, how do we navigate that? What if the victim is fucked up? You know, like how do we kind of talk about those things in a way that's sensitive to the reality that like, these are club spaces, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, especially to, to kind of speak from personal experience, I started to feel a little bit weird because when I was still single and like dating people who were drinking to be the sober person and to be like, what if this was opposite? Like, what if I was a dude? Would that still feel okay? You know? Cause I do think that there is a gender imbalance in, in that kind of thing. Um, I mean, as there is in most rape culture, but um, like, as you mentioned, like you talked about the intensity of like playing, you know, and, and not being like with or without drugs and alcohol, you know, so there can be a, a desire for an out of body experience, be that physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, whatever, like, how do you think that we can keep each other safe in such contexts? You know, I think it's hard. Um, I think, <laughs> um, I, th I think again, it just, it requires, certainly someone who hasn't always been conscious i think yeah it's about people learning to be more conscious of things one good thing i sometimes notice in the kink community for instance is that people are so focused and nerdy about their kink or their fetish um that actually they don't need to cross that sort of fucked up threshold or that drunken threshold because for them that thrill and that sensation that you might get from drinking or taking drugs is fulfilled by the act that they are participating in and i find that interesting that was quite new to me um as someone who goes to techno to be inside my own head for instance to be in place where that's not necessary was quite interesting and, and nice um, but I do think we, I mean, Carl is very good at this. He likes Club Marte and caffeine drinks. But, you know, to go to places where um, where the culture is, where there is an apparent culture um, that you do not need to take drugs, you do not need to drink, and that participation is not mm. predicated on, on those things. And that requires all of us as a collective effort, I think. 
Absolutely. Have you found it as a DJ (laughs) sort of hard in the green rooms and the environment that, that you have sort of come across, particularly in queer spaces? I mean, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting question just because, like, my whole, like, life is essentially built around giving me immunity to my own alcoholism or my own addiction, like, my own cravings, essentially. Like, the work I do outside of those spaces is in order to create neutr- internal neutrality. So if I am presented with people blowing fucking fat rails in a green room, I can kind of be like, oh, I hope they're having fun, <laughs> you know, as opposed to, like, feeling left out or trying to steal some weird vicarious like psychic vampire shit from other people getting loaded. Um, and for the most part, it's really effective. And, you know, um, so, and also like that part of my life, like getting to be in, in, you know, green room spaces and like getting to do this for a living full time and tour and stuff like came kind of deep into sobriety for me. So I had lots of practice time um, learning how to kind of really value and protect my sobriety. All that stuff is to say, like, those aren't necessarily challenging environments. And if they are challenging environments, I can kind of re like, I know the steps I need to take in order to protect my recovery, because it's really like, it's the basis for all else for me. Um, but I, it's also been interesting kind of in kink spaces to learn, like, you know, there is this idea of like, I mean, they have entire 12 step programs about it, about like sex and love anonymous, or even like sex addicts anonymous, this idea of like, the sexual experiences as drug, you know, and, or the addictive quality of that. And I think that like, especially in a situation that has the level of intensity that these situations have potential to have, it is also important to kind of maintain some level of emotional sobriety to like going into those situations. So one can kind of get out of body or like be entirely present, whatever that looks like in, in real safety and like without losing but without losing oneself in a way that feels like uh scary you know Andrew I'm curious how do you take care of your um your sobriety huh? and recovery do you go to 12 step the most part you... I would say I would say that it's it's very much situational um I I have a very addictive personality like an extremely addictive personality I don't play the lottery because I know that if I played the lottery, I would lose all my money to gambling. Um, I try not to keep biscuits close up. I, I have a, uh, I have a sort of uh, a bipolar disorder. That's disorder is probably not the right word to use for it now. Um, but I am one of the one of the uh, the sort of side effects of that is that I am hypersexual. Um, so it was interesting to hear you to you say that. Um, so I can go all or nothing. Um, I've been very lucky that my relationship is as solid and as strong as it is. And I would say I, I have much more issue with drink than I, I perhaps do with drugs. But my partner isn't much of a drinker at all, and that's really helped. Um, but still, there are there are times where I know I take it too far. Last October, um, I was on one of these electric scooters that you can now hire to sort of get home from the town centre. I don't know whether they've now gone across sort of the rest of the world. Um, and I had been yeah. having some drinks with some friends, and on the way back, I uh, collided with a car. Not badly, um, but oh, I still oh, broke shit. my nose, four teeth. Um and it was really interesting because even though I knew that I hadn't sort of drunk too much or, or what have you, just knowing that path that my sort of senses were dulled by the fact that I had had a drink really sort of, yeah, it, it made the situation, I would say, considerably right. worse. And then the way that I was treated when I went to accident emergency and that sort of thing. So I would say that it's, yeah, very much a, an up and down, an up and down process. I've never felt need for instance to to go through a, a program um i've had a lot of therapy uh, particularly sort of about 10 years ago i was in sort of constant therapy for about three or four years um and for the most part i always say to myself yeah i've got a i've got a handle on things um but then when i flip over i really flip over 
Um, and it's never gone particularly well. And I think this is also one of, for me, one of the really empowering things about being involved in something like Verboten. When you have a, and also being involved in a type of play that requires a high level of responsibility, I think, from everybody, um, because then you have something bigger than yourself. And for me, that keeps me sort of mm. on the straight and narrow, I think, more to, to know that there is there are significant consequences if my emotions are, are dulled or if my response time is dulled or if my sense of place is dulled and and for me that's probably been the most useful the most useful tool of all keep busy hmm. no but it's interesting that you you call it like literally being a part of something bigger than yourself because like the whole point of going through you know a 12-step process or being part of a re- like mutual aid recovery community is to like surrender to a higher power you know and it's like the group or the thing larger than yourself is that higher power then like of course like of course it helps kind of make wise choices around sobriety. Like it's always interesting to kind of like watch how that function can look different, but still kind of meet the same need, you know? And I think, I think as um, well. One... And... No, no, I was, no, I was just going to say it's, yeah, it, it's just made me more critical to myself as well. Oh, how how do you kind of temper that like self criticism with like tenderness? Because <laughs> you seem like a lovely individual. So, <laughs> like, you know, I'm always here. Like, I think we tend to be quite hard on ourselves, and it cannot it can be helpful to kind of like, you know, wake up, um, and change our lives in in what sounds for you like a, a really meaningful and effective way. But it also can be like if I bring that level of self criticism to myself in all areas, then it can be like exhausting and kind of damaging like a joy suck you know well I, I think being raised catholic probably put me on the wrong path from from the beginning at least in terms of being critical to myself um as also as anyone around Indeed. me would tell you to being a martyr to things I, I have a real martyr complex as well which which doesn't help um so it can be it can be hard work but i i would always rather be i suppose more critical of myself um, than less so. Um, I, I think a lot of people would say that I'm probably caught like overly cautious sometimes, particularly with the way that I play. If I'm not sure about something, I, I, I just don't do it. Um, but I, I that that seems like a great like, ground rule. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any wisdom you would like to give to kinky people who want to get sober, or to sober people who want to get kinky? I would say it's it's tricky. Um, to do this it's easier said than done but i would say just be very 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 clear with the people that you trust um be very open with communication i think a lot of the time we stop ourselves from doing things one because we don't know that we feel the pressure to be fun or entertaining or certainly i do um pressure to give value in a social dynamic um, and I think we worry that if we take away some of the tools that we're conditioned to think enables that, then suddenly our social circle will disintegrate, when actually I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and I think if our friends are uh, our true friends, it sounds pithy to say that, but if, if they're people that really care about that, then they will understand if you listen. It takes a big leap of faith, but it's often much harder for us to say things than it is for them to hear things. And that often the tools that can be brought in to help don't have to be a big thing. So for instance, it sounds silly, but I find it helpful if drugs are done in a room, in another room, and then you have a choice. You have to make an active choice to walk into that room and decide whether you're doing it or not mm-hmm. and that might not work for everybody but it's just a small thing that your friends can do um and if you're going to an event email them you know email for both and email a club that you want to go to and say what are your like drink op- like what are your drink options do you have do you make have diet coke oh, do you have yeah. things that aren't alcohol you know um and i think these days places are much more clued up than, than they used to be. Um, and I, I think people respond to that. It, it takes bravery. It does. But I, I think 
supports there if we if we look for it. I think that's so important to hear. Thank you for highlighting that because I think we can get into a space where it's like it's just too hard to go out and express my needs and it's like well no that it is there but again it's sort of being an active participant and finding out about that and being engaged in that and also allowing oneself to sort of be completely fucking wrong and being like oh well you know and holding it a little lightly and saying well maybe that wasn't what I liked but I tried it and therefore I can maybe and, swerve and we to are something not, else. I mean there is now I would say a, a, certainly in London a really sort of growing uh, portion of people in the scene and the club scene and the kink scene who are completely sober. Um, there's a uh, an American from New York uh, in London called uh, Chad Curry, Dark Demure. He's a DJ, um, famous for wearing sort of very Butoh-inspired sort of makeup. Um, and if you were to watch uh, Chad dance or watch him DJ, you would think that he who's on drugs 24 7 but has been sober for over hmm. five years now um and that's i think fairly fairly common um so if you're somebody who's sort of exploring these things you are not the unicorn um yeah there are other people out there there is no question you can ask organizers that's too weird or that's too much trouble um and there shouldn't be too much yeah, a question that's too much for your friends. And if there is, it, it's at least worth thinking about the context in which they are your friends. Yeah. yeah. I think totally. it, and I love the way that you highlighted like the, the the fact that courage is necessary to make choices like this, but totally not impossible, you know, because I do think courage is a very attractive quality. Um, and also kind of lastly to like pivot into a different realm of questioning. Um, you're also a model and you had mentioned a shifting relationship like with your body um, and kind of what you were like when you, when you talked about like um, the incident with too much MDMA and kind of having blood on your face. And like, I was curious as to kind of if um, modeling has also changed the relationship with your body. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, if you look far enough back on, so I think certainly my Instagram, I don't think there's anything on my fat life. Um, up until about 2010, 2011, I had hair um, and some very, very dubious haircuts. Um, so I think sort of fate intervened just at the right time. So after going through a, a period of extreme stress, and this is the period where sort of my drinking got out of control as well, um, the deep breath out, as my doctor described it, meant that all my hair fell out. And for a long time, uh, that really sort of affected me. Um, and then uh, I had a very um, a very sort of valuable platonic friendship with a, a friend who was also a, a professional dominatrix um, who really sort of encouraged me to even just like walk up and down a room naked until you're sort of not doing the stages of evolution and you're standing up straight. Um and that was um, essentially sort of in a very platonic way dommed me into sort of dealing with things. Um, and then because I, and then I sort of started going to a lot more like play parties than I had because I'd sort of, I was then meeting people through these environments. And after a while, I just sort of got into the habit of saying yes to everything um, and appreciating that just because my body did not fit a certain prescriptive idea of what is beautiful or what is masculine um, or what should be seen in these spaces um, didn't mean that it shouldn't have value to me and also couldn't have value to other people. Um, so I've, I've been, I've life modeled at the science museum to sort of 500 people and I've been in some music videos and I, I've been able to do some things that I, I'm very privileged to have done, but which I never would have experienced with, uh, if I hadn't sort of gone through this process of, of transformation. Huh. Um, and I still, I definitely have my doubts. I mean, if you go to some clubs these days, I mean, people are so beautiful or they take such good care of their bodies or you know, they, they sort of fit these self-imposed ideals um, and I, here in Oslo, everybody's so tall and strong and 
gorgeous and there's me sort of five foot six and, and not so not so sort of a4 um as, as annika would say um but it's yeah it's <laughs> nice to remember and i think hopefully kink spaces help this and, and club spaces certainly do um that that we all have value both physically emotionally and, and sort of psychologically and that's value for ourselves first and foremost and, but also to other people I mean, when i sort of make fun of myself in terms of the way they look everyone's like shut up <laughs> um stop saying that. you're wrong um and it, eventually you start to believe it Wow, that's, that's so brilliant. beautiful like thank you for sharing that with us because i do think it's really valuable especially because you're like you know one of the wonderful things about kind of kink spaces and like having alternative ideas of instead of this very kind of like i don't know hyper traditional like idea of what what is sexy and what is sexual to be able to kind of like, how dare I not kind of think of myself as valuable. Like somebody on this fucking planet thinks I'm a fucking babe, <laughs> you know, and sort of to, to have a, a friend supportive enough to kind of like dom you <laughs> into getting over yourself. Yeah. Essentially. It's like, sounds hyper yeah, it's extra- I, and I, it, I find oh, I the, the sort of the Venn diagram between uh, doming and therapy really interesting um and i think because i do think there's an overlap and obviously you sort of have to protect yourself in either field um but yeah i i certainly sort of yeah i could i certainly saw the sort of the benefit of having someone sort of tell, you know, do this and do it like this you know it was good for me Fantastic. <laughs> yeah Hooray for not being A4. I love that. <laughs> okay, let's zip in to the lightning round. So this is just basically, don't think about it, just answer sort of situation. What is snack. your favourite snack? Definitely paprika flavoured Yes. <laughs> what turns you on? I mean, you mentioned violence. But Drool. What is the last inspiring thing you encountered? That's a very good question in a pandemic. Um, my um, <laughs> My partner... Uh, yesterday she started working a ceramics workshop and they had a dinner together and I was inspired by the fact that the world is slowly starting to to get into a shape that people at least in some places can have those sort of have those interactions I thought that was that was brilliant and that gave me hope that gave me a sort of little glimmer of hope that was possible hey Love it. What's the song that gets you um, into your body? I would say pretty much anything from Louise's most recent album. Hey. Um, and I don't say that I don't say that facetiously. We listen to a lot here. Um also uh The Cure. Um so probably pictures of you by the cure. Yes. Uh, and also one and another oh, I can't yes. credit find this. Susan's Four Floors of Halls recently is a, a track like that I'm very, very into. So I would say that is bang. What is the last book or series last you binged? Series I binge <laughs> Star Trek Discovery and the Terror. Slightly more respectful. <laughs> um, yes. So, and the books I haven't actually read so much during the, the pandemic, but we're big Jeff Vandermeer fans, so uh, I, I would say it's probably uh, probably something by Jeff Vandermeer. What do you Double. love? In general, I love people, first and foremost. I love breaking down the boundaries between friends, lovers, strangers, acquaintances. I, I think that's very exciting. Um, I love really loud music. Um, I love really cheesy films. Um, and oh. I love bringing people together who do interesting things and who should know each other and then watching them collaborate. I, I get a lot of a lot out of that. Where can people find you on the uh, World They can Wide find Web? me under Drew, D-R-E-W-J, this is the letter J, Beckett, B-E-C-K-E-T-T, on Instagram. Uh, you can also find me that way on Facebook. I'm Ink and Concrete on um, FetLife because I like brutalism and I'm tattooed. Um, otherwise... <laughs> Oh, I, you're probably if you're in any way kinky or into fetish or like really dirty techno, come and say hello because 
I'm usually around somewhere. I'm bald and tattooed. I'm not quite at level yet, but I'll, I'll get there eventually. I think.